story. I'll be surprised if you haven't heard it before. Then again, if you've not heard it before, I will be glad you are hearing it for the first time because it makes a good point. It supposedly happened 50 or more years ago. Two men from America were sent to a third world country to establish a business selling shoes. Upon arrival in the country and after investigation of the situation, one of the men immediately called back to the home office in the USA. He was so depressed, so discouraged, so unhappy, so defeated. He said, we have made a huge mistake. The people in this country do not wear shoes. They all run around barefoot. There's no point in trying to establish a shoe-selling business over here. A day or so later, the second man called the home office. He was not so depressed. To the contrary, he said, Sorry it's taken so long for me to report in, but I've been so excited about establishing our new business over here, I just have not had time to call. I cannot believe the opportunity we have in this country. Everybody's running around barefoot. This means everybody in the country needs a pair of shoes, and we can be the ones who sell the shoes to them. Same situation, two different perspectives. One man sees a problem, the other sees an opportunity. Does a nation full of barefoot people mean a shoe-selling business cannot help but fail, or does it mean a shoe-selling business cannot help but succeed? I have no idea if the story is true, but according to the way I heard that story, the second man with his business of selling shoes did stay in that country, and his business was a wonderful success. It brings to mind a simple spiritual chorus I learned years ago. It spoke to me loudly the first time I ever heard it. It still speaks to me today. The chorus goes like this. Why complain about your problems? Rejoice in your opportunity. You have a chance to grow in grace. Take hold of responsibility. The reward is worth the suffering. There's glory some sweet day. So praise God for the problems along your way. Is a problem really a problem? Or might it be an opportunity? The title of this message is A Good Man for Bad Times. As we continue our look at the life of the prophet of Elijah, we learn of an occasion when he met a good man who had done a very good thing in the midst of difficult and dangerous circumstance. The same problems which surrounded this man's life gave him means of ministry and an amazing way to serve God. Our story begins with a man of value. I'm reading from the New International Version. The first statement in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, plainly shows the desperate nature of the times in which this story is taking place. It says, After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Now, what is this telling us? The, the screen skipping back and forth here. Yeah, you're, you got it right there. You're, you're right where you're supposed to be. So what is it telling us? Well, it means there had been at least two full years and, and actually part of a third year in which the land of Israel had experienced drought. Can you imagine more than two years of absolutely no rain? 
This was extreme drought. There has been no rain. There had been not even dew on the morning grass. By this time in the drought, there would not have been morning grass for dew to fall upon. The grass was withered and dead. The crops had failed. When crops fail, animals do not eat. When animals do not eat, they die. This means the supply of milk and meat had gone away. As well, there was not grain for the making of flour and cornmeal. Food reserves were used up. Not only were the animals starving, but people were starving. It was a time of large-scale deprivation with the anguish and pain that go with it. God is a merciful God. There had been a need for the nation to be judged like this. Those who had gone the way of sin and who had turned to idols had a hard lesson to learn. The lesson had been meted out over these past two and more years. Now it was time for the lesson to come to an end and for relief to come to the land. So Elijah has been told the rain is going to come, and in preparation for it, he's to have a meeting with King Ahab. So we come to verse 2. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now, after that very short statement about Elijah's action, we're given a further bit of information relating to the drought. Verse 2 also tells us, now the famine was severe in Samaria. Samaria was the region where King Ahab lived. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 through 33, we're told the palace of Ahab was in Samaria. And we're told that his wife, Jezebel, had there in Samaria built an altar and a temple for the worship of Baal, who is the false god of the heathen. So Samaria was the center of the drought because it was the focal point of the judgment that was coming down from God. The famine was bad all across the land of Israel, but in Samaria it was the worst. Now with this information in our minds, we find the story switching from the prophet Elijah to a man named Obadiah. So understand, Elijah's been sent to go find Ahab, and we know he's on the way, and we know the plan is the rain is finally going to come back to the land. So as Elijah's on the way, all of a sudden, we're being told about another individual. Now, some think this man is the same as the prophet Obadiah, who wrote the book called Obadiah later on in the Old Testament. Others do not think it's the same Obadiah, because that name, Obadiah, in the Bible is fairly common. When my son David and his wife, Tisha, had their first child, they named him Caden. At the time, I had not heard of many children named Caden. I thought it was a rather unique name. Now Caden is eight years old, and I'm amazed at how many kids I come across his same age who have that same name. It seems at certain times and certain places, certain names prevail. Well, Obadiah is a common biblical name. Scripture indicates at least ten different people who have that name. So there's no reason for us to say that this man in 1 Kings 18 is the same person as the prophet Obadiah. I believe he's a different person, and I think it's important for us to know that he was not that prophet, because what this Obadiah does in this story is meant to be a testimony about a normal person doing an extraordinary thing because of his faith in God. Verse 3 tells us more about him. It tells us Obadiah was the governor, which means administrator or business manager over the house of Ahab. He was the guy who took care of Ahab's things. He was what we might call the the manager of the place. Then at the end of verse 3, we're told yet another thing about Obadiah. He was a devout believer in God. 
Obadiah was a man of open and obvious faith. Now, we need to stop and ponder this. Who did Obadiah work for? King Ahab. Who was King Ahab? An evil, mean, and nasty man. A man who endorsed the worship of idols. A man who had allowed his wife to kill the preachers in the land. Look at the first line in verse 4. The first eight words of that say, While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets. Jezebel had launched a campaign to slaughter all of those who spoke the true word of the Lord in that land. Those in the land of Israel who yet followed the true and living God were being persecuted. Yet, when Ahab needed a man, he could trust with his money, trust with his things, and trust with the needs of his family, he employed a believer. Now, this is an amazing thing, and it tells us even a bad man can see the value of a good man. A person who cannot be trusted, nevertheless, can appreciate knowing someone who can be trusted. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7, from the New American Standard Translation of the Bible, we are told, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And this puts, puts before us a very important concept for the Christian life. Make sure you understand this. This is something all of us must understand. And that is there is a difference between one's position and one's disposition. Position is what we believe. Disposition is how we behave. And not only is it, impossible, is it possible, it is important, it is vital to be appreciated for our disposition, even when we are not appreciated for our position. To put it in terms of Ahab and Obadiah, you ma- imagine Ahab saying, the faith of Obadiah disgusts me. I don't even want to hear him talk about his God. However... I do not know of anyone who is more dependable, more responsible, and more competent. I do not agree with what Obadiah believes, but he is the best employee I have ever had. Do people say that kind of thing about us? Do we understand the importance of our personal conduct in relation to our witness? Listen, we are to work at being the kind of people who are impossible not to trust. And hopefully, impossible not to like. In our modern world, there will be many who dislike our stand against abortion. They will be angered by our belief that Jesus Christ is the one and only way to heaven, and without him there is no hope. They will be upset by our adherence to traditional family values and our message that men and women who sleep together ought to be married to one another. These are the things they will not like, but our kindness... Our honesty, our financial integrity, our loving character, our unselfishness, our positive attitudes are things they will like. And this was the example of our Lord and Savior. When Jesus Christ was delivered up to be crucified, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Judas said, I have betrayed innocent blood. It was not the character of Jesus Christ that put him on the cross. It was his message. He was a wonderful person. He was known as the friend of sinners. Matthew 1 or eleven nineteen tells us that. The problem was not with his personality. So Ahab was a man with this faith that Ahab would not have liked. But as a person, he was the man Ahab trusted with basically everything he had. And this brings us to a second major thing to see in the story. A man with opportunity. 
Once again, we put our attention on the text and what it's telling us about Ahab and in the situation he was in. Verse 4 says, when Jezebel had launched her attack on the prophets of the Lord, Ahab had taken 100 of them and hidden them in caves. And while they were there, he had kept them fed and given them water. Now, what a risk that was. Had Jezebel learned of it, torture, imprisonment, and most likely death would have come to Obadiah. He'd laid his life on the line to protect God's men. And more than that, he'd used his position to do what almost no one else could have done. I mean, who has the ability and the means to keep 100 men fed for many days? Ladies, how would you like to find out that 100 people are coming to your house for at least several months And it's up to you to feed him. If your husband just laid this news on you, you might be tempted to double up your fist and lay right back into him. I mean, feeding 100 men is a big undertaking, right? And trying to do it in secret would seem an impossibility. Who can do this kind of thing? Well, it would be someone who is completely trusted with the resources of a king. Because he was an administrator of Ahab's house, and because essentially he was the CEO under the king, Ahab was able to secret away enough food and enough water for the men who were in trouble. In other words, since he had the job of working for a wicked man in a wicked place, he also had the opportunity to minister to a crucial need. Think about this too. I remember hearing something said about 30 years ago that I think is probably more important today than it was 30 years ago. A well-known television preacher made a challenge to young people to get out with their Christian testimony into the secular world. He said, we need Christians in politics. We need Christians in the legal field. We need Christians in the media. We need Christians in secular institutions. We need Christians teaching in secular colleges. If we do not get Christians out and into our secular society, we are surrendering opportunity to influence and change society. And part of the motivation behind that preacher's words was his observation of a tendency for Christian people to want everything around them to be Christian. You become a Christian and not long you hope you're working for a Christian boss. You hope you live in a Christian community. You want your kids in Christian schools. You only want to hear Christian music. You only want to read Christian books. And some go so far in this effort, they basically cloister and seclude themselves from secular society without paying attention to the fact that when they take themselves out of secular society, they also take their witness out of secular society. Now, I know I have to be careful how I say this, because it's wonderful to be surrounded by Christian things, of course. I'm not against Christian music, Christian books, and Christian schools. My grandchildren go to Christian schools. But the point is... The work and the witness of the godly is needed in the world of the ungodly. And if your boss is not a Christian, if you have a neighbor who does not know the Lord, you have a classmate who's not a believer, you have a friend who would rather listen to Bruno Mars than Mercy Me, that is not necessarily a problem at all. It rather very much may be your opportunity. Obadiah was a good man living in bad times with a bad man for a boss. And because of this, he was used to keep preachers alive and the ministry of God's truth in his present, in his nation. So are we willing to and are we taking advantage of 
the opportunities God gives us to impact secular society. This brings us to the third major thing to see in the story, a man with flaws. Obadiah was a good man. We might say he was a great man, but he was not a perfect man. In 1 Kings 18, verses 5 through 7, we are told Ahab sent Obadiah on a mission. He was to search the land for water. Remember, this huge famine is going on. The plan was Ahab would go one way, Obadiah would go the other. They would look everywhere in hopes of finding something for them and the animals to drink. They had to do this. If they did not find water, death would settle over the entire land. So what happened when this happened? Ahab went one direction, Obadiah went the other. 1 Kings 18.7 tells us as Obadiah went his way, he came upon Elijah. Now this was no chance meeting. As always, sovereign God had his hand on every detail of the encounter. God had sent Elijah back to Israel. Obadiah's moving across the land, scoping out the country, hoping to find water. Instead, he comes across the man of God. This is not an accident. The same verse, chapter 18, verse 7, tells us Obadiah immediately recognized Elijah. He bowed in respect. He asked for confirmation of what he thought he already knew. And that is, Elijah, is it really you? And he says this because he can hardly believe his eyes. He can hardly believe this is happening. And Elijah says, yes, it's me. Go tell your master I'm here. Now, that would seem to be a simple enough request, right? Hey, Obadiah, you work for Ahab. Go tell him I want to see him. But Obadiah did not see this as a simple request. When I was in high school, I had some friends who thought it was funny to prank people. They would call a local grocery store, and when the clerk answered, they would say, Do you have pop in a can? When the clerk said yes, they'd say, Well, let him out. The kids need him back home. And they would hang up the phone and laugh like they'd really done something clever. A joke based on the word pop, either being soda pop or another word for father. Well, it really wasn't that clever. It wasn't very nice. It was an immature, juvenile thing to do. Well, Obadiah was worried that a prank might be played on him. Only this would not be something silly and immature. It would be deadly. In verses 9 through 11, he basically says to Elijah, Are you trying to get me killed? Ahab have been looking everywhere for you. This is what Obadiah is saying. If people say they don't know where you are, they're forced to make an oath about that. And now you want me to tell Ahab where you are? I know what's going to happen as soon as I do. As soon as I tell Ahab I know where you are, God's going to take you somewhere else to protect you. And then when Ahab doesn't find you, he's going to kill me. And he follows this up with an assertion, this assertion up with a plea. He says, hey, I'm a servant of God. I've loved God from the time I was a child. Haven't you heard how I protected the prophets from Jezebel? I don't want to turn you in, especially knowing you're just going to disappear anyway and I'm going to be dead. Well, what's so interesting about this is these are the words of the same godly man who was willing to hide the 100 prophets from Jezebel. This is a smart man. This is a trusted man. This is a man who believes in God. But here we see that also he's a man who's afraid, a man who doesn't want to die, and a man who doubts the intentions of the prophet. So what does this say to us? What does it show us? And that is a person can be used by God in spite of flaws and failures. It tells us there can be a mix of doubt and faith in the same person. Have you ever noticed this about yourself? 
On the one hand, you have complete confidence in God, right? On the other hand, you have all kinds of doubts and fears. Did you know this is basically normal? As we continue our study of the prophet Elijah, we're going to see this was true even of the great prophet himself. He was a man of powerful faith, but he was still subject to fearfulness, doubt, and depression. Now, now this doesn't mean our problems and our weaknesses are justified. That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean we should not make the mistake of thinking that, that we have to be perfect for God to be able to use us. And have you ever done that? Have you ever looked at someone and thought, if I only had it together like that person has it together, then God could really do something in my life? That's not how it works. Have you heard the saying, I finally got it all together, then I couldn't remember where I put it? There's the old story about a preacher who one time in a sermon asked, has anyone here ever met a perfect person? A man near the back raised his hand. The preacher said, you, sir. Are you saying you know a perfect person? The man said, no, I don't actually know him. I only heard about him. According to my mother-in-law, it's the guy my wife should have married instead of me. (laughs) Well, obviously the point is there's no such thing as a perfect person. We know while in this world our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was perfect, but apart from his life and testimony, there's no such thing as a person who has it all together. We are to recognize that even great people can get confused and have their struggles. Personal perfection is not a requirement for being used by God. The good news here is God uses us in spite of ourselves. Although we don't want our problems and we work at overcoming our problems, we must not wait for our problems to go away before we pursue opportunity to serve the Lord because if we wait for that, we're never going to serve the Lord, are we? So uh, it's not about making excuses for ourselves, but it's about understanding that in spite of ourselves, we need to do whatever we can to serve the Lord in the here and now. Obadiah was a wonderful man, but he still had his problems. This brings us to the fourth and final part of the story, a man who knew what to do. Obadiah had said, if I tell Ahab where you are and then you're not there, I'm dead. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. That's 1 Kings 18 verse 15. It was a promise not to run away. Elijah was saying, I will meet with Ahab. Don't you worry about it. Trust me. What did Obadiah do? It was at that point where his faith and fears came together like the cartoon where a man has an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. Into one ear, the angel whispers, do it, do it, do what the prophet says. Into the other ear, the devil whispers, don't do it, don't do it, run away from this, look out for yourself, take care of yourself first. Did Obadiah listen to his fears or did he follow his faith? Well, before we answer the question, let's talk about high diving. I've always liked to dive from high places. I do not know how the desire got inside of me, but I've been this way since I was a little kid. When I was six years old, I went off the 12-foot high diving board in the local swimming pool, causing great panic among the lifeguards. When I was 10 years old at Bible camp, I was the only kid my age to dive off the 20-foot tower in the center of the lake. When I was 18 years old, I dove from 50-foot cliffs into 7 feet of water, and the newspaper came to take pictures of it happening. 
At this stage in life, I still love to dive off high rocks and bridges. Now, I am concerned about the depth of the water, and I always check for hidden obstructions. I know what I'm doing as far as the water's concerned, but I have never had concern about the dive itself. I just love to do it. Well, why do I not have concern about it? I've thought about this a lot, and a reason why I've thought about it a lot is often other people have accompanied me on my diving adventures. I have crawled up the cliff and immediately hurled myself headfirst off back down toward the water. Others have crawled up the cliff or climbed up the tower and sat there. And sat there. And sat there. I've seen some sit for many, many minutes trying to decide. And, and I've actually, on a good number of occasions, seen people crawl back down and climb down, not doing what they initially thought they were going to do. Well, it's okay to change their minds. I, I, it doesn't bother me because it's better not to dive than to get hurt. And somebody who's afraid, I think, is going to get hurt. But I've reached a conclusion about this. And that is the mind needs to be made up before the test begins. The person who assesses the situation and decides what he's going to do before he ever makes the climb usually does not hesitate when he reaches the point of no return. He already knows what he's going to do, so he does it. But if the decision is not really made before the test begins, and if a person waits till that point of no return to then try to decide, do I really want to do this or do I not want to do this, if you do that, it's much more difficult to follow through. Well, I'll admit diving may not be the best example. On more than a few occasions, I've had people question my possession of good sense when it comes to the combination of deep water and high places. But I hope you can see the comparison. A key to success in the face of a challenge is having already made up your mind about how you will respond when the challenge comes. We need to do it. We decide, need to decide now what we will do with whatever we might face then. Obadiah had faith, but he also had his fears. But it was obvious, it is obvious, by way of what he did for the 100 prophets and by way of how he answers Elijah here in this verse before us, he already knew which way he would go and he had, at that point of no return, and he had made this decision a long time ago. You see him back at the end of verse 12. If you skim back to there, he says, Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. From the time he was a child, he was a man who had made the choice to follow his faith. He had his faith, he had his fears, but he already knew he was going to be the kind of person who, when those two things met, set the fears aside and honored the matter of faith. Therefore, he did do what Elijah said him to do. After saying, you're trying to get me killed? Elijah says, trust me, do what I say. So verse 16 says, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And then Ahab went to meet Elijah. And the challenge in this is for us to make up our minds now, in spite of our fears and in spite of our flaws, that we will be the kind of people who always follow our faith at that point of decision, no, we're not perfect people. And I know I'm not perfect, and you know you're not perfect, but I also have made up my mind at that point of tough decision, I'm always going to choose to trust God. I'm never going to let my fears win. 
We're to make our minds up about that now. Next week, we'll see what happens when Elijah and Ahab actually meet. And this is the end of everything we know about this man named Obadiah. But God chose, by way of the first few verses of 1 Kings 18, to give us a glimpse into his life. Because we need to see a man with a secular job, working in an ungodly environment, who stayed strong in his faith and was used by God to save many and serve the great prophet. It's a clear testimony to us that our ministry as individuals starts with how we live our lives. We're to be lights shining in the darkness. We're to be the kind of people who are impossible not to trust and hopefully even impossible not to like. We're to share God's love and God's truth as he opens doors for us to share. We're to choose faith over fear and give testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ in every way we can. With that said, would you please bow your heads and close your eyes. This is how we always conclude our messages Because we know that we need to take the message personally. This is about hearing what God has to say to us today about our lives now. So first of all, are you maybe at some point in life where you're struggling between fear and faith? The two have come together. You feel like there's some things that God wants you to do, but you've got your fears as to whether or not you should proceed. Will you make up your mind right now? You're going to choose faith. You're not going to be that person who goes up there and sits and says, should I or shouldn't I? I don't know if I want to do this or not. You're that person who says, I will follow faith. I will not let fears win. And let's go back to that matter of trying to be the kind of person who's impossible not to trust. Maybe you're strong and your spiritual positions, and there are people who disagree with you. It's no problem. As long as they still trust you. As long as they still see you as a person who can be appreciated and respected. We have a responsibility to live our lives in a way that speaks to the soundness and reality of God's truth. So let's consider our conduct. Let's pray that God help us be people who really practice what we preach. And people who live in a winsome way. Even though we have opinions that are contrary to the general thinking of our world. Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful glimpse. Into the story of a man and his life in a tough situation. Thank you for the reminder of how you can use us. And, oh, Father, help us to be those who understand the difference between a problem and an opportunity. May we take a sense of excitement over the opportunities instead of being defeated by the sight of a problem. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. We have a final song to sing.